Uh, I just wanted to come and be an encouragement to you guys, and uh, thank you for having me, and to spend some time answering any questions you might have about Bible and life. I've been working with college students for uh, a long time now. Uh, it's, it's been, uh, I've been doing ministry to students for 20 years somehow. So I'm old, and I'm okay with that. Uh, and it's, it's been the joy of my life to minister to college students and to uh, see them grow in their faith. And I, I wanted to start out tonight, Chris asked me to start out tonight just by talking a little bit about uh, me and, and my uh, call to ministry. The other day somebody asked me about my call to ministry and I didn't answer their question. And I've been thinking about it ever since. Uh, it was kind of a short conversation and I just said, I, I didn't have any kind of mysterious voice that called me or anything like that. But ever since my friend asked me that, I've been thinking about how, how I perceive going into ministry with my life. I wasn't like a little kid who, who wanted to be a pastor. I didn't practice preaching when I was in first grade or anything like that. I had dreams and aspirations, I think, like you guys did. Uh, at one point in my life, I wanted to be an architect uh, well, I'm sure at one point in my life I wanted to be an astronaut, but that's just because I was a little kid. But I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to, uh, I had other things I, I wanted to do, but it was about the time I was in high school that I started to just sense uh, a stronger desire to be more involved in ministry and in serving the Lord. And I didn't think at all that that would be the work of my life or my career. I just knew that that's what I wanted to spend my time on. And so even my maybe sophomore year in high school, I started to get more involved at church and teach uh, little kids Sunday school classes and work with the junior high kids at our church. And, and it wasn't, you know, it, by no means was I thinking this would be what I would do with my life. I just knew uh, increasingly that what mattered more than anything else in life was the souls of people. And so I, I, would, I would just, I would be very mindful of that, I think. And I was a knucklehead teenager like all knucklehead teenagers. There's not, I think, a whole lot of profoundly wise teenagers in the world. Uh, but I just had this increasing sense of desire to serve Jesus. And it was my junior year in high school that I got to go on my first international mission trip to Mexico City. And it was there that I became more aware of the global need for the gospel, that there was not only lost people all over the world that needed to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, but there was Christians who didn't look like me and who didn't speak the same language and who worshiped the same Jesus I did. And that was a profoundly impacting moment for me. Uh, that short-term trip was, I think, 10 days in Latin America, and I'll never shake it. I'll never get over it. I'll always be mindful of the impact that that had on me. And it wasn't that I left there and thought, you know, I want to work with students the rest of my life, or I want to be a preacher when I grow up, or something like that. It was just there that I had an increased desire to serve the Lord. And, and I would see things in the Bible like the, the disciples following Jesus and leaving behind their, their vocations to be disciples. And, and I, I didn't want to, to not work for a living. I didn't want to, to not go to school. So I was in college and I was serving at my church and working with young people. And I encountered verses like Ephesians 4.12 about 
serving the Lord in ministry and using your gifts in ministry. Uh, 4.12 says, uh, it says, it was he who gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verses like that impacted me, and I knew that even as I was in school and as I was working, I knew that I wanted to serve the Lord, and so that's what I did. And uh, one thing led to another, and that desire became stronger, and eventually I was doing a lot more teaching, uh, and I think that's where my gifts were kind of pointed, and I became more aware of my need for training. And so then I, I ended up moving to California with my brand new wife, my first and only wife, but she was brand new to me then. And that was 12 years ago. And I went to seminary at Masters. And then I met you guys. And that's pretty much the whole story. So, and then I rode the bird. Gloriously. Did it ever stop beeping, Chris, once it got out of doors? Hmm. I wonder what we did wrong with the bird. It's going to be bad. There's going to be a charge. It was driving fine. I don't know. Maybe somebody could Google that, look into it. We'll fix it after. Uh, what else did I have to say? That, that's what I want to talk about, that call to ministry thing. And I think the encouragement to you would be that Ephesians 4.12 describes different kinds of roles in ministry. Some were foundational to the church, like the apostolic ministry, uh, the prophetic ministry. Uh, and there's aspects of all of these things that are, are still relevant today, uh, being sent out, being prophetic, being evangelistic, uh, shepherding people, teaching people. You know, teaching isn't reserved to John MacArthur, or to pastors at the church, uh, the Great Commission is for every Christian, and Jesus said to go out into all the world and teach them to obey uh, all I've commanded you. And so I hope that you feel like you have every opportunity to be involved in ministry in the stage and age that you're at now, that you can be fully engaged in school and pursuing your training for your vocation pursuing education, whatever degree you're on, and meanwhile, be training your own heart and life and time to be engaged in serving others in the church. If I were to talk to my 22-year-old self, I would want to affirm in him that there's great value in the ordinary aspects of life that to excel as a believer wasn't just to abandon all responsibilities and you know, serve the church full time, but to do all those things well, to do school well, to represent Jesus well on campus. It's a, it's a discipline to learn how to serve God in both ordinary parts of life, secular parts of life, and represent Jesus there and also to be fully engaged and plugged into your, your local church. And so uh, that's, that's what I'm passionate about, that we could talk about that tonight, or I could answer all your relationship questions. So, uh, or like theological stumpers. I could warm you up for when Al Mohler comes in a few weeks. So a lot of people have said, you know, Duncan, you're, 
I think you might be as smart as Al Mohler. So, <laughs> nobody has ever said that to me, actually. So, what do you want to talk about? Want to do some questions? Uh, want to talk about serving the Lord in ministry? You have questions about me. Marilee's here somewhere. Marilee's here. She's in the middle. Marilee, if you have questions for Marilee, there's a roving microphone. You can ask her questions. Uh, Ollie Joe is here. Ollie Joe, are you here? Yeah, she's raising her hand so she can answer any questions. Ollie Joe, how old are you? Five. So she, she can answer questions. Ella's here. Ella, how are you doing? Good. And Adeline's here. Adeline? Adeline's my junior high kid, so she knows, you know, math and science questions, if you have those. And Owen is here. Owen, how are you, bud? You're doing good? How many teeth have you lost? Four. Good job. Yeah. So we're all here. The Duncans are here for a Q&A. And I don't know, if you have questions about life or ministry, also Chris G is here for any stumpers. And Matting. Matting, I had rainbow matcha. Rainbow. I took a picture of it. I'll text it to you. Okay. Questions. Who wants to do the first question? Get to know your college pastor. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Oh, there's questions over here. Hi. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that comes every semester pretty much. That's a great question. That's a great question. Chris G. So maybe you're kidding, maybe you're not, but I think it's a good question. And I didn't always believe the way I believe now about predestination and free will. I was raised in a church that was not what we would call Calvinistic or Reformed, and there might have been a chance that if you asked me about predestination and explained to me that the concept was that God chooses people before they have the opportunity to choose Him, that God is totally sovereign over salvation, which would be kind of an implication of predestination, I might have said, like, I don't think that's in the Bible. Uh, the problem is, is the word predestination actually is in the Bible. It's in Ephesians 1. Uh, it says that in kind of a, a list of, of all that God has done in saving us, uh, it's describing the praise of his glorious grace. It says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. It's hard to wiggle out of, of being able to talk about predestination when it's actually something that's in the Bible. Both the idea of election or God's choosing in Ephesians 1.4 and that word predestination carry with it the idea that God is in control over who is saved and who is not saved. So when you think about predestination, it's, it's easy to think about God being arbitrary in this choice, uh, to compare it to like Russian roulette, you know, spin and click kind of a thing. Uh, it may make God seem to you to be capricious or uncaring. Uh, it may seem unfair to you. 
And all those things are really good questions that I think are worth struggling with when you're willing to listen to the Bible and listen to what the Bible says about those things. So those are not doctrines that are simple or easy or quickly resolved. So I like the way you asked your question. What's your name? Micah. I like the way you asked your question, Micah. Micah's in the Bible. And, and there is some kind of balance or awareness that we have between a conception of human will or volition or choice. You called it free will, which I wouldn't necessarily call it that. Uh, and the idea of God's sovereign choice, right? Because we're all aware of choices we've made. Have you ever made a choice? I chose matcha rainbow tonight. Was God like a sovereign puppet master making me choose matcha rainbow? I mean, who dropped the microphone, me or him? So when you start to like kind of ask those sort of questions about God's sovereignty and your own responsibility, you recognize that there's this kind of tension and it can drive people crazy when they don't understand how it, how it works. And I do think that there is uh, something that theologians call antinomy, attention, truths that, that pull at each other, that, that you do have uh, some amount of freedom uh, in your choices, though I believe that they're restricted by your nature and by your will. Uh, and I think ultimately God is over uh, all of those choices in his sovereignty. So uh, I think the way to think about it is, is more in terms of human ability and what the Bible talks about when it talks about what we're able to do. Uh, and we only choose what we're able to do, right? We only choose according to our abilities. You can choose to ride a bird uh, because you have the ability, you have a credit card and a driver's license which mine just got charged 1,500 bucks, I think. Chris, we really gotta figure out that bird problem. But I can't choose to get to the moon because I don't have access to Elon Musk's stuff. So there, there's things that restrict me in my abilities, in my means, and because the Bible tells us that we're all sinners by nature and by choice, that we're all under the curse of God because of the choices of Adam in the garden, uh, then I think it reminds us that there's things we cannot do. Uh, Romans chapter 2 says there's none righteous, not even one. And we can be reminded that, that human beings are intrinsically sinful. And so morally, we're restricted in the choices we make. And so our, our will, though free to do as we please, because we're sinners, we only choose to do that which pleases the flesh until God changes us and gives us that heart of stone. Predestination really isn't a doctrine that is one that you should think of as a bad thing, but one that you should be grateful for and that should provoke you to worship. If we really were, and the Bible says that we are, sinners, and unable to free ourselves from sin, then in God's plan, in his sovereign plan for him to choose some and rescue some is not injustice. Justice would be for him to condemn all of us to hell. For him to choose some and rescue some is an act of his mercy. And if you have questions about the fairness of that, I think the Apostle Paul had those same questions, and he wrestles with that in Romans chapter 9. 
And that'd be a good place for you to study and think about how God's sovereign choice works. And really the resolution that he comes to in Romans chapter 9 is in verse 16, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Quoting the Scriptures, I'll have mercy on whom will have mercy and compassion on whom will have compassion. Uh, God's choice has always been free and unconditional. Even back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I think verse 7, uh, God chose Israel. He didn't choose Assyria. He didn't choose Babylon. He didn't choose the people of Ur in general. He called one person named Abraham. He called one nation called Israel, and that was a free choice that God made, not that Israel made. And it was rooted and grounded, according to Deuteronomy 7, in God's love. So God chooses according to love. And when you recognize as a Christian that you've been sovereignly chosen by God, that doesn't provoke you towards arrogance, like I'm chosen and they're not. It provokes you towards worship, like that's not what I deserve. I deserve the wrath and curse of God, but God gave me His mercy, and I'm grateful for that. So that's a little bit about predestination and, and the will of man. I could give you more good stuff to read on it if you want to read something good. Uh, probably my favorite thing on election is a book by the late, great R.C. Sproul called Chosen by God. It's a little tiny book. Uh, I don't know if, if there's a way to get it free online, but it's not expensive. I bet it's the kind of book you'd get for like 99 cents on Kindle. So he goes into it in a lot more detail and talks about the history of the doctrine of election, how people have understood it, uh, talks about some of the philosophical questions you might have. If you're a philosophy major, I don't want to talk to you afterwards. So there you go. Okay, good question. Good, good way to start with an easy one. Good job. Uh, your name and your question. Yeah, it is, Evan. Good to see you. Okay. Did you call me dad or you have a question for my dad? Okay, that's fine. You're, you're coming home with us tonight. And you're working in the yard all day tomorrow. Evan's cleaning my garage. Yeah. That's a great question, Evan. And at my house, you will have to wear a head covering. <laughs> so say hello to your baby brother, Owen. He's two rows behind you. So when you're dealing with something in Scripture that is presented, you have to ask yourself, you know, what's the context of this thing? So if you have a Bible, you could open to 1 Corinthians 11, and you can see that Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthians that have contextual connections to their world, things that are outside of our world because of the time in which we live. To give you some examples from 1 Corinthians uh, he talks quite a bit about uh, the nature of Greco-Roman idolatry in 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, he talks about some of the issues of marriage in the ancient world that are not the same as issues of marriage in our world in 1 Corinthians 7. He talks about lawsuits, which would be specific to their system and not ours in some ways. 
and in other ways they would correlate. Uh, but you have to remember that the Bible was written in its own time, in its own context, and so you have to be mindful of that context when you study it. And when you get to 1 Corinthians 11, there's something here that's very contextually difficult to understand, uh, starting up in verse 2 of chapter 11. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for a woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. I'm in verse 12 now. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? Any top buns in the room? Talk about it. Verse 15, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, and I know that's not your, your desire, uh, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Well, Christian head covering is an argument that is as old as 1 Corinthians 11. So since the first century, Christians have talked about how they are to think about the roles of men and women in the church. And you can see that that's what's being talked about here, right? Uh, you saw him talk about uh, in verse 4, praying or prophesying. That's something that's happening in the church, and it's talking about both covering heads, and it's talking about uncovering heads, and it's talking about length of hair on both men and women. And so the Christian head covering idea has to do with practice in the ancient church, and it has to do with creational matters that lie underneath it, okay? So you get the creational matters that lie underneath it from like verse 8 through verse 11. And when you're thinking through what this means today, you have to understand what parts of this are restricted to that time and what parts of this are transcendent. And the things that will remain transcendent are the things that are the creational realities underneath it, okay? So verses, 11, or verses 8 through 11 are the creational realities that are, that are underneath this truth. And please know that you can go to, I think it's called headcoverings.com, and they make, uh, there's like a, some movement that's a head, modern Christian head covering movement that makes sort of cool videos 
uh, about the head covering thing, and they make an argument that everything in this passage is uh, timeless, that the concept of head covering is something that should be practiced in churches today. So know that I'm not making fun of those people if, if they believe that or if you came from a church that believes that. But at Grace Church, uh, we believe that the part of this passage that is transcendent and that is timeless is the creational realities that undergird it. In other words, what he's arguing for is the roles of men and women in the church and in worship. At Grace Church, we believe that the Bible teaches that the office of an elder or a pastor is restricted to a man, not because men are better than women or superior in any way spiritually whatsoever, but because that's the way that God has ordained it. We also believe that there are things that are biblically masculine and biblically feminine, and those things are identified somewhat in this passage. We all would be able to identify things that we understand to be masculine and things we understand to be feminine, and that's part of what he's talking about here. Uh, the reason we believe women should not be elders isn't because of this passage. This passage doesn't directly speak to that. That would be a passage like 1 Timothy 2, um, 13, I believe, or Paul's prohibition about women teaching in the church. But what you find in this passage is the idea of creational order, Adam being formed first and then Eve, Adam not being deceived, but the woman being deceived. First uh, Corinthians 11, verses eight and nine specifically, have this same argument that has to do with men in, in pastoral ministry and women being prohibited from pastoral ministry in the context of talking about prayer and about prophecy. So the inconsistency in those two things, I think is only apparent and not in reality. Because I believe it is consistent to not require women to wear head coverings and affirming the creational reality that is more significant. In other words, the head covering is an outworking of the creational reality. The creational reality is that a woman is to be subject to her own husband. How that looks in our culture isn't head coverings. Head coverings were something that was predominant in the ancient world, both in Judaism and in the society and in other religions. Head coverings here are something quite anachronistic. There's a reason when you see someone wearing a head covering, you think they probably don't have electricity. Uh, it's, it's kind of an Amish thing. And that's because head coverings don't mean to us what they meant to them. And when you look at a text like 1 Corinthians 11, I think the timeless question you're asking, you need to be asking is, how are men and women both operating in a way that honors God's roles in their, God's created roles in their lives as they go to worship in the church? Does that make sense? Starting to? So, I know this is a super long answer about head coverings, but I don't want to be dismissive because I, I understand why Christians believe that if you say this is, is uh, something that is contextual and ancient, then why can't you say that about homosexuality? And the reason 
that I say this is something contextual and ancient is because I think that's the way that this text argues. I think this text argues from something that they understand in their culture to something that undergirds it creationally that is timeless and that doesn't change from culture to culture. So Paul's argument from creation that demonstrates that men and women are distinct is not culturally subjective. The application of that argument is culturally subjective from time to time and country to country. Does that make sense? Okay. You understand? Okay. I'll see you in the car at home. Hi. You guys are going for the hard ones tonight is what you're doing. That's what's happening. I feel like you've conspired against me. Okay. You only get one question tonight. You mean your only question? <laughs> Say a little bit louder. That's a great question. I love your question. You might get a second question because you threw me a softball. So, how do you study to the glory of God? How do you eat to the glory of God, right? If the Bible says that you should do everything that you do to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink, do so to the glory of God, then I don't think he was merely talking about eating and drinking. I think the idea of doing something to God's glory and when you apply it to something as insignificant as eating and drinking, reminds us that all of our lives can be done to the glory of God. In other words, for the honor of God and for the worship of God and unto God. There's things you can't do to the glory of God. Can you think of one? Sin. Somebody said it. You can't sin to the glory of God. Why? Because sin dishonors God. So is there a way you can eat sinfully? Yeah, it's called gluttony. Is there a way you can drink sinfully? Yeah, it's called drunkenness. Now, is there, on the opposite end of that spectrum, uh, a way to eat and drink sinfully that isn't about excess? Well, yeah, you would think of somebody with an eating disorder who doesn't think rightly about food and rejects food and, and throws it up and, uh, because they have this conception of themselves that's not biblical and not honoring to God. Uh, so there, there's ways you can, you can do this eating and drinking, such an ordinary thing, to the glory of God, and there's ways that you can do it to the dishonor of God. And if it's true of eating and drinking, then it's true of school and academics and studying. So how could you study in a way that would not bring glory to God? Well, I would say that you would study in a way that well, doesn't represent your best effort, it's not done unto God. It's not done for his glory. It's done for the promotion of yourself or your own pride. And it's done to the neglect of things that matter in your life as much as or more than academics. And I know that's, that's a hard one to swallow, right? What matters more than academics? You, you mean you did a lot of work to get into this joint, 
4.25 incoming GPA. Come on, I'm proud of you. So I'm just happy to have this many smart friends. So, but you understand that there could be a person who is an excellent student who neglected all other aspects of his or her life for the pursuit of academics, including their devotion to Jesus, their service to God's people, uh, their care for their family, their commitment to others in order to excel academically, and you could see how that might turn out later in their life as they pursue advancement in their career and success and promotion, also to the detriment of all the other things in life. And so a life lived to the glory of God is a life lived in wise balance, right? So I'm not telling you, you know, you should go for the C average and teach a Sunday school class at church. I am telling you that there is a way, and it looks different for every single one of you, to live your life academically and in the church and in your families that will be wise and balanced and unto God for the rest of your life. And, and nobody does it perfectly. I don't do it perfectly by any means. It's hard to do work and discipleship and personal devotion and family worship all in perfect harmony and balance. And part of life is just figuring that out. So you do school or study to the glory of God by having him be the object of your affections in all things that you do, including how you take tests and including how you make decisions about what you study and how you study in order to preserve all the priorities you need to have as a man who fears the Lord. Does that help you? Okay. What's your, you get a second question. It was a pretty good question. If it's bad, though, I'm going to kick it out because it was your second question. Say it one more time. Don't make things legalistic. I, it, I have to, I probably, I'm, I'm kind of going to have to guess by what you mean by that, I think. Um, how do you make sure that things you believe don't become legalistic? So let me just talk about legalism for a minute. And if you've been at church on Sundays, I'm being redundant, so I'll only talk about it for a minute. Uh, MacArthur's teaching through Galatians, and he's taught us that legalism is thinking that something that you do contributes to or earns God's favor or even your salvation. And so legalism would be some set of rules that either things you do or things you do not do that make you think you are pleasing God. What pleases God is faith. What pleases God is for you to come to his son in faith and receive forgiveness and remission of sins because of what Jesus has done for you. And so Christianity by its very nature is not legalistic. We are not people who live by rules, but people who live in freedom because Jesus has forgiven us of our sins and set us free. At the same time, we are people who choose to abstain from some things. And some of us choose to abstain from things that others of us don't choose to abstain from. And that's because we don't live under a list of commandments. We live under a list of a law of love, a law of honoring Christ. And so legalism 
tries to make rules that God hasn't made and tries to follow rules to earn favor where God's favor is not earned. So I think that's kind of how I would start to think about legalism. If you're asking about if you can have a cigarette after, that's a kind of a different question. But um, if you're asking if, you know, because you don't have cigarettes and because he does, does God like you more, that's when we start to think about legalism. And you shouldn't smoke, it's bad for you. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like fun. You guys know how to pro you guys know how to party on a Friday night. Catch the orange. Catch the orange. Uh, so dispensationalism would have caught the orange. Covenantalism covenantalism says, well, there isn't really an orange, but the concept of an orange coming towards I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's not at all true. Uh, so here's, here's a theological topic that may or may not be interesting to you. I'll try to, I'll try to make it quick and brief and vague. Uh, dispensationalism, as traditionally understood, is kind of a system of theology that wouldn't be too hard to trace its roots back maybe only 150 years. And I have never met a real dispensationalist, not in my whole life. Uh, they believe that God operated in the Bible in seven distinct eras, and uh, it's like creation to the flood, and I don't remember the other seven. Again, I think they're like brontosauruses. They're not around anymore. So, brontosauri? Yeah, brontosauri. Not around anymore. Um, dispensationalists are known for the way they think about eschatology. Uh, they would believe things like that there is a significant difference between church and Israel, and even the earliest and most extreme dispensationalists would say that there's a that the church and Israel occupy heaven kind of in two different zones. Uh, if this sounds weird to you, it's because it is totally weird. And so dispensationalism is, is a very weird system. Covenantalism is, I would say, an equally weird way to understand the Bible. Uh, they look at the Bible instead of in seven chunks, in two parts, that God made a covenant of works with mankind that he failed at, and after that covenant of works failed, God made a covenant of grace. And so theologically, it's two systems that are ways to understand how the Bible starts from creation to consummation. Dispensationalists say it's these seven eras and God working through two distinct peoples, first Israel and then the church, and continuing in those two parallel lines that never touch. And covenantalists would say it's kind of one people uh, with total continuity. It's why a covenantalist would have a really easy time telling you you should baptize a baby because they see a lot more continuity between Israel and things like circumcision and the church and things like baptism. So now those, those are like, that was a presentation of dispensationalism and covenantalism that I think was fair to both and a presentation of both sides that neither side would like very much because there's a whole lot of true things in this system and there's a whole lot of true things in this system. I believe that there's a lot of continuity in the Bible. I think that there's one redemptive storyline that runs through the entire Bible, but I wouldn't like you to call me a covenantalist. I also believe that God began his work in a people called Israel and that 
Israel rejected their Messiah according to the testimony of the Gospels, but because of passages of Scripture like Romans chapter 9 through 11 that talk about a restoration of a branch uh, of God's people, and because of chapters in the book of Revelation like chapter 20, uh, I think that God has a future plan for the restoration of his people Israel. But I do not think it will be separate than the church. I think that they will be part of the church and we will all be one people of God. And that makes me sound a little bit covenantal and a little bit dispensational. So I, I, I learned from MacArthur, he's a Bible guy. He's not a system guy. And though he would probably lean more towards dispensationalism, he would reject almost all the stuff that I said a dispensationalist believes. So that's why he calls himself leaky. I don't call myself leaky because it sounds gross. I'm more greasy than leaky, I think. It's the boba. So it's two ways of understanding the Bible. And amateur theologians or people that decide to go to Southern instead of Masters. What? I didn't mean it in a bad way. Make it like it's, make it like it's a real clear-cut thing. Like, well, you're either covenantalist or dispensationalist. And dispensationalists write wacky, you know, rapture fiction. And covenantalists you know, think deeply and smoke pipe tobacco. So that those aren't fair representations. And the reality, and I think what the Bible actually says, would involve these people. And, and today, dispensationalism is, is a very broad thing when these kind don't agree with these kind. And covenantalism, there's not that many people that, that would buy into the, just the twofold thing. And so there's there's a lot of nuance there. It really comes down to how do you understand the storyline of the Bible fitting together? And I think the best way to solve that is not by a system, but by reading your Bible and by trying to think about what are the themes, and I don't think it's just one, the themes that hold the Bible together. I think there's themes of kingship, and I think there's themes of priesthood, and I think there's themes of glory, and, and all those themes uh, I think can be traced and I think someday God in heaven will show us from start to finish how this all worked. And I think the dispensationalists will go, ooh, I missed it. And I think the covenantists will go, oops, I blurred it. And God will say, I get all the glory. Okay? All right. I have friends at Southern Seminary. I like them. I'm gonna, I would like girl questions. Girl question. I'm so happy to be your pastor, but I'm more grateful for Chris G because he is the best. He promised me that whatever happens with the bird, he's going to pay for it. <laughs> Remind me your name again. Dawn. That's a pretty name. Mm -hmm. I just had a, a dawning realization of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, it was National Pun Day the other day, and they had they have a pun off. You can Google it. I don't know. It was somewhere, somewhere uh, punny. Yeah. Don, go ahead. Sorry. Sure. Totally. Yeah. No, I, I, I feel that way right now, actually. Uh, <laughs> so different people are different, right? Different people have different personalities. Some people just are a little bit more chirpy, 
and some people are a little bit more gray and morose, right? I mean, some of you lean, who leans a little more optimistic? Who leans a little more pessimistic? Who feels sad much of the time? It's okay. Who feels, who feels, who feels sad hardly ever? Yeah, so see, everybody's different. And if you've ever heard a Q&A with John MacArthur, you understand this, because John MacArthur doesn't have what humans call emotions. He doesn't. He only has truth. He just, he feels things that are true all the time. He does, sort of. And I'm like the opposite. I feel everything all the time. I'm like really happy or wondering why. That's it, just wondering why. So I, I get it, and I think, I think, we, and I, I think most people aren't one or the other. I think we all understand you know, the, the blend of emotions and the things that, that get us up and down. And for me, you named one of the things that I love and that God uses in my life to help me think right, and that's the, the book of Psalms. I love the Psalms because they present a God who understands human emotion and understands that we are not steady and we are not always solid and we are not always uh, constant. But he presents himself, especially in the Psalms, as always steady and always solid and always constant. Words like he is a, Psalm 46, our God is a refuge and a fortress, a stronghold, a very present help in times of need. Those words resonate with me. In a few weeks, I'm going to preach on Psalm 40 at church when MacArthur is out of town. And uh, Psalm 40 is this plaintive cry. And for me, it's in the words of Bono because I'm old. Uh, how long, O oh Lord, uh, how long will I cry uh, for you to hear me? And those kind of psalms help me see that if a spiritual superstar like David, whose heart was close to God's heart, uh, struggled with circumstances affecting him and struggled with deep sorrow, but also had testimony of God rescuing him from those things, like in Psalm 40, but then would end up, again, mindful that his sins were as numerous as the hairs in his head, Psalm 40, and then the song ends with him back in the pit that he started in. It's just a reminder that that's kind of what life is like sometimes. I mean, this life ends with death. There's not a, like an awesome way to put that. And Christians understand that we have hope in death and the resurrection. But still, death is such an enemy that it made the Lord Jesus cry when he faced it in John 11 for his friend Lazarus. Just the very presence of death, I think, is what provoked Jesus' tears in John chapter 11. And we live in a sad world. Kids get diseases and die. And that isn't right. It's wrong. It wasn't like this in the beginning, and it won't be like that in the end. And so I think to, to give you a conception of life where you should walk around with a dumb grin on your face all the time because life is easy and happy is not reality. This Sunday in Crossroads, we're going to start studying a book called Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes, uh, you could take it to just give you advice 
about like, don't mess up your life or you'll have a bad life like King Solomon. But I don't think that's the message of Ecclesiastes. I think the message of Ecclesiastes has a lot to do with living your life in light of the fact that your life will come to a screeching halt someday. And to make decisions in your life based on the fact that your life is a very temporary experiment in the presence of God. And it's one where wisdom will pay great dividends and folly will pay you the bad kind of dividends, but both of them will end with you in the grave. And ultimately, your life is going to be lived before God. And thinking through that with the kind of reality and awareness of the transitory nature of life, that there's dilemmas in this life that we cannot solve, that there's questions we can't answer, that there's hardships we'll never wrap our minds around, I think gives us a more realistic view of life, especially if you're 18 to 23 years old, because most 18 to 23 years old haven't seen the worst parts of life yet. Those are coming ahead of you. And Ecclesiastes has this amazing kind of sobriety to it that will help us, I think, think more accurately about dark seasons of life and sweet seasons of life because Solomon experienced all of them. So that's, that was a really long answer for a really good question. I liked your question. So the Psalms helped me. Yes, what's your question? Yeah, say, say, do that one more time. I liked your question. I think I could answer it with yeah. Sure, sure, okay. So rejoice always, the Bible says, right? Rejoice always. And she's talking about we're commanded because that is an imperative tense. It is a command, rejoice always. And that makes us think, okay, where else in the Bible does it talk about not rejoicing? There are times when grieving is right. There's a season for it in Ecclesiastes. In fact, the Bible commands us to grieve with those who grieve. And so we have to be careful that we don't think that joy means big grin, smile, and giggles. Joy is something far more enduring than that and far more stable than that. I'm not saying that joy isn't happiness. I think that they are synonymous terms, but I think a Christian's joy runs deeper than a superficial kind of happiness. Uh, there's something profound about Christian happiness. There's something immovable about it so that we understand our responsibility to rejoice always will be something that we learn to do even through sorrowful seasons of life. The loss of a loved one, um, suffering physical pain and affliction. Uh, there's a way to rejoice in sorrow and there's a way to rejoice in happiness. And a lot of it has to do with, I, I think, Philippians 2's presentation of, of the, the joy and humility of Jesus. Or I think of passages like uh, Hebrews 12, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning at shame. Look at Gethsemane to the cross and tell me what joy looks like based on that. I don't think Jesus giggled once. I don't think Jesus had a plastic smile smeared across his face. In fact, he had drops of blood 
that he was perspiring and he cried out to his father. And I think all the while he was rejoicing, rejoicing in doing the father's will, rejoicing in the hope he had in God, rejoicing in his obedience to his father. So joy is a lot more substantial than we take it to be. And I don't think it's different than happiness. I think the Bible is indiscriminate and synonymous in its use of pleasure language. But I do think our understanding of happiness and joy can be superficial or it can be really deep. So I think that that's how that looks. Say one more thing about that that might help you, and that would be this. Uh, Joy and happiness is an emotion, right? It's a way you feel. All over the Bible, God commands our emotions. It's one of the reasons, I believe, in the sovereignty of God in all things, including predestination and election and commanding joy. Only a God who can change human affection and hearts could command emotions of his people. So if you're struggling for joy, then I know exactly where you should turn. You should ask God to change your heart. Ask God to redirect your affections because he's able to do that. The same God who commands you to rejoice always is the one who can redirect your affections to be more down deep in an unshakable kind of reality. Does that help? Okay. Elliot, how are you? You're my coworker. We're colleagues, you and I. Yeah, I like it. This is my colleague, Elliot. Colleagues? Uh, what's your question? Joys are watching students grow in their affection for Jesus, watching them uh, own their Christianity. You know, so many of you guys grew up in Christian homes, but now you're on your own and you're on the loose. And to see you embracing the church is such a joy for me. To see young kids that I was their junior high pastor get married and have kids and be devoted to serving the Lord and his church is the greatest pleasure of life. And the greatest sorrow of life is the opposite. It's to see apostasy, to see someone confess allegiance to Jesus and then see them walk away. Nothing breaks my heart more. Nothing is more wearying in ministry. And it's something that the longer you're a Christian, the more you'll see it over and over again. You'll see people profess faith in Christ. And just like Jesus promised in that parable about the seeds, some of them fall on good soil and grow and produce a harvest. And some of them fall on rocky soil and they shrivel up and die under heat and difficulty. So that, that's, I think, that just broadly, the, the sweetest parts are fruitfulness and the hardest and saddest parts are people who walk away from Jesus. Next question. Red shirt. Remind me your name again. Caleb. I'm sorry, I forgot your name, Caleb. You should get an embroidered shirt that says Caleb. It says something on there. What does it say? It looks like Evolution. It does. It looks like the guy walking kind of hunched, and then he's a little higher, and then he's walking good like Cro-Magnon. Oh, it's a physical therapy shirt. Maybe it's, it's that guy. He needs physical therapy. He's like, I wasn't evolving. I, I needed PT. 
Yeah, it's question time. <laughs> Comedy's over, question time. How did I meet my wife? It went like this, hello. <laughs> my name is Austin T. Duncan. Merrily, how did I meet my wife? Does this one work? Hello. Oh, this one's like super broken. Here, that one's for you. How did I meet my wife? <laughs> Merrily, how did I meet my wife? My voice has been going for a long time. Uh, Austin's answer to this is much longer and only a quarter true. So. <laughs> I'll let, I'll let him tell you. Um, Austin and I were in at the same church all through, um, I guess Austin was like a fourth grader maybe when he came to our church, but we didn't know each other until high school. He knew my family, my sisters, and then we um, went to that, on that same mission trip that he mentioned earlier to Mexico City, and we became friends, and then we served on junior high and high school ministry together, and um, just developed a friendship, and then 10 years later, we were married. In Austin's version, he was trying to marry me those whole 10 years. I have a microphone Oh, now. no. But that wasn't totally true, because he was not ready to get married for nine and a half of those years. I had a, so, I had a, I had a mountain bike. He did, he did have a mountain bike, but you need... Hello? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was, we met at church and served in ministry together, I yeah. think is the, is yeah, the main Yeah, so that's, thing. that's how we met. Yeah. Yeah. The, the weird part of our, our story, and I don't think it's that weird, somebody was asking us at dinner earlier, we had a, we had a really exclusive dinner earlier with the Boba winners. Uh, where she cashed in a whole lifetime supply of boba in one dinner. It was pretty sad. But we were talking, and the part that's weird to some people is, uh, I think the question was, how long did you guys date? And we didn't, we were never boyfriend and girlfriend. We kind of skipped that stage. Uh, we were just friends for 10 years. And, you know, there was obviously, you know, times that were more sparky than others, but... It wasn't like, you know, it didn't go from like repulsion to marriage. So I have to say that because sometimes when I tell this story, a guy will come up to me afterwards and be like, I knew I would win in the end. I will, I will continue to stalk until I die. And I'm like, ugh, get away, dude. That's not how it was. So, so I, I think that, that that's, I think, what's unusual. But I, I think what's, what I love about our story is that we were friends for so long. So we've been friends since we were 16 years old. And it's such a good thing that we didn't get married when we were 18, when I was 18 and she was 17. Uh, I wasn't ready. It, I was, it would have been a disaster. And though the greatest you know, thing, I, uh, it's ever, the best decision I've made in my life besides following Jesus is marrying merrily, uh, you know, I was 26 when we got married, or 25, and she was 25, 26. I'm a year older than her. So, yeah, I, I think that that's, that's what makes our story a little bit different for people, is that there wasn't, like, breakups and stuff. We didn't have drama. Uh, we just both came to a realization 
at the same time, thankfully, <laughs> that we wanted to spend the rest of our lives together. And yeah, that was, that was what was, was sweet about it. So I proposed to her in at the end of August in, I don't know, the year, and we got married in October, same year. So it was like a six-week engagement. It went fast. And now we have four kids who are losing teeth like crazy. Okay, next question. Boba winner, you get the next question. Here, I, I'm probably hurting your neck, so I'll go back up front. Mary, you hang on to that microphone just in case there's a question for Ollie Joe. Ollie Joe, how many teeth have you lost? Zero. Zero. Good job. She's, like you guys, she's good at math. Chris, how long does this go for? Is it like 11 o'clock at night? Okay. Boba. Uh, say one more time, what is the church's stance on feminism? Clarissa, say it one more time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, feminism is a, is a, is a loaded term, isn't it? Um, some of you might consider yourself feminists because you are opposed to rape culture. Uh, maybe you consider yourself a feminist because you believe that men and women are worth equal pay. And maybe you consider yourself a feminist because you uh, believe in uh, women's right to vote or to carry rifles, I don't know. Uh, so I, my, so I, I wanna be careful about what, what I, how I answer a question about what is the church's stance on feminism if it's not defined by, say, me. Uh, so maybe what do you mean by feminism is, is an important part of this question. I will say, uh, I'll, I'll make some, some really specific statements that might help. So. At our church, we believe in what theologically is, is called uh, complementarianism, that men and women are created equal before God with equal rights and standing before God, that men are not superior to women spiritually, which is the way that matters most uh, spiritually. You know, that, that we believe in real physical differences we would even uh, affirm that there are emotional, psychological differences between men and women because we believe that men and women are made both in the likeness and the image of God, but are his brilliant creation in their differences. And there would be things that we would say the Bible identifies as distinguishable differences between men and women that some feminists on your campus would disagree with because we believe that there are things that are maternal and feminine about women, and we believe that those are wonderful things that God created and affirms that, that girls are girlish. And we believe that men have responsibilities and creational realities that make them different. So we believe that men and women are, are, are equal before God, but are different 
in creation. And that in and of itself, a real feminist wouldn't like because today especially, there is no difference, they would say, between a man and a woman, so much so that a man could go to the doctor, get fixed like a dog, and call himself a woman, and see, now I'm, now I'm really being not politically correct, but that's because we live in a culture that's crazy, and absolutely not so crazy when it comes to understanding something that even a child understands fundamentally unless this crazy culture warps their thinking. So we believe in men and women. We believe they have different roles in marriage and different roles in ministry. And we believe that because the Bible talks about those things. Uh, what else do we believe about men and women? Uh, I think that's the main thing. You know, other things that would be considered kind of pillars of feminist doctrine uh, our church would very strongly be opposed to abortion, for example, because of what we believe about the nature of human life and about murder. So things like that would be very not feminism. Uh, but again, if you think that I'm saying that men are superior to women, that is not complementarianism, that is not biblical Christianity, uh, if you think that I think men are smarter than women, uh, I don't believe that. My wife smokes me intellectually all day long. So, yeah, that's, that's what I would have to say about that. Some words about feminism. I, I could probably recommend something helpful to you. Uh, MacArthur wrote a book. It's hardcore. It's hardcore. You got to be ready. You got to put on your safety goggles when you read it because uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't hold back. And it's, an, it's actually a really good book, and I think it's very affirming of these differences that are creational and of the beauty of God in them, and it is called Different by Design. I believe that's what it's called. They've changed the title a few times. Different by Design. Person in the back, hello. Hi. Marie? Hi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. No, I love your question. It's you answered your question, and I love your question. It, it's it's so good to hear someone remind us what it's like to live in a way that thinks everything has to be earned and deserved and worked for, uh, and then to apply that to religion, and then to come to see Christianity in its 
lavish offers of grace, unearned, unmerited, undeserved, is the gospel. And it's what's so awesome and so different about biblical Christianity. And so I, I love the way you described it, and it's exactly right. Uh, my mind goes to passages like Titus 3.5 uh, that says, and I, I think this is, this is how you repent when you think differently and when you start to think as someone who's either thinking about legalism or thinking about working for God's favor or working for God's acceptance, you just have to remind yourself of the gospel. And Titus 3.5, uh, look at verse 3, it says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done. Did you hear that? Not because of righteous things we had done. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. I mean, that is, that's the gospel. That's why we have verse seven, the hope of eternal life. And whenever we slip into thinking that because we sinned or because we were unwise or because we didn't go to church enough or because we didn't whatever, that somehow we've slipped outside of God's favor, we have distorted the gospel. Jesus loves you, gave his life up for you, not because you were good enough. And that doesn't change when you become a Christian. You don't then start to earn your way into heaven. It doesn't switch to a meritorious system. Uh, the gospel of grace remains completely committed to God lavishing his grace on us, not because of us. And the reason we want to obey and the reason we want to please God is because we recognize that. And the reason our, our hearts are pained is because we've, we've come to love the God who saved us and we want to please him. And we understand that sin dishonors him, but our salvation and our sanctification are ultimately both, I would say, all glory, all credit goes to God. It's just that in sanctification, in the process of becoming more holy and pursuing spiritual disciplines and uh, learning to pray and read the scriptures, all things that are good things, none of those things contribute to our salvation. Uh, those are all things that really the ultimate credit for them goes to the grace of God anyway. And so I think I would say to you, just remind yourself of the truth of the gospel and that it is still true whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or for 50 years, all of us are saved solely and completely and utterly by the grace of God, not because of works. And Christians have to remember that we are not sanctified by works, but sanctification is also a process that is an engagement with the grace of God and the gospel. And so we do work to, we work and we work and we try and we fight our sin and we do all kinds of things as believers because we know that those things will honor God and these other things will dishonor God. But never for a minute do we let our minds slip to forget that God saved us based on the glory of his grace. So God made you to know him. And 
all of us have an accounting to give to God, and we know that we were rightly do the justice of God, but Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins, and that's the gospel. And when we remind ourselves that that cross that he died on, he was a substitute for us, he was raised to life on the third day because of us, that that's the basis of our acceptance by God, uh, that reminds us and, and I think grounds us and sends us back to remember that it's our responsibility to trust him, to believe in him, that it's not our righteousness, it's his righteousness that counts as our own. So I'm just, I'm just saying the gospel a bunch of different ways right now, but I think that's, I, I love the way you said it. It's just repenting of that and reminding yourself of what's true. I think a final question. Hi. I turned 40, I'm old, I can barely hear. I'm coming. Coming over to hang out with you. Here's your orange. Go ahead. Yeah, you're not to honor them at all. You do not honor your parents at all if they tell you to do something that's against God's command. And the examples I would use for that are the examples of the apostles who disobey the government in order to obey God. Shall we obey God or man? Shall we obey Caesar or man? Because Romans 14 says that you are to obey the government. But the clear example given to us in the Bible is that you obey the government only as much as you can as a Christian. So if the government tells you you need to worship Caesar or Trump, uh, you should not do that. And you should, you should disobey the government. If your parents say, that's enough Christianity, you stop it. You will. I forbid you from being baptized. That is not something we do in our family. You have to show your parents that your obligation is to your heavenly father. And it's why Jesus reminded Peter in uh, the book of John that those who leave mother and father and brother and sister and land and homeland for my sake will be repaid uh, a thousandfold uh, in the kingdom. So those kind of promises remind us that sometimes the gospel costs us our families. Now, how that works out practically looks differently. I've baptized kids that came from a Buddhist background whose parents forbid their baptism. I baptized like high school kids that came out of the Roman Catholic Church whose parents uh, forbid them from being baptized. And we didn't just rush into the water uh, one Sunday and, and kind of go to the parents. I met with the parents. Uh, the kid met with the parents. It was kind of a careful process where we wanted them to understand what kind of defiance this was because they were also about to experience the most obedient, the most submissive, the most kind child that they had ever seen because their child had been changed by the grace of God. But there were going to be times now because of their allegiance to Jesus that they would disobey their parents in obeying and honoring God. So their dad would say, you need to sow your wild oats, son. What is this idea? You need, to, you need to go experiment a little bit. 
This young man disobeyed his parents by keeping himself pure, for example. Uh, so the commandment of God is above the commandment of man. But I would tell you, seek wise Christian counsel in how to explain and apply those matters in those situations. And, and I'm not talking about preferences here. You know, your parents may be asking you to do something. You have to finish college before you get married. Well, they're the ones paying for it. And you're going to have a hard time finding a Bible verse that's like, you know, thou must get married by sophomore year, <laughs> for thine servant will have ring before spring. <laughs> so, you know, you don't have a verse on that one as much. So, Rachel, that one hit home, huh? So, no, it didn't hit home. It didn't hit home. Rachel and I are friends. We're colleagues. Or at least we were until I said that. So, she just liked my ring before spring joke. That's all. So, did you, does that make sense? We're, we're talking about things that are matters of clear biblical priority. I, I think I might need to apologize or <laughs> write, a, write a letter or something. I, I went too far. Marilee, you knew it was going to happen. At some point, you knew it, right? See, she's smarter than I am. So, Chris, did I say that well? <laughs> Not the ring before spring part. The part before that. Yeah, so... It, yeah, it's, so obeying Jesus isn't case by case, is what I'm trying to say. Obeying Jesus is not case by case. But how you'll graciously and wisely obey Jesus when your parents say, don't obey Jesus, is what we're talking about. Because you will, as a Christian, choose to obey your Lord and Master before you'll obey your, your before you'll, I mean, when it calls for disobeying your mom or your dad. But as a child in submission to your parents, living under their authority at this stage and age that you're in, which is different than when you were seven, right? It's not the same. If it is for you, we're praying for you. Time will come. They'll grow older. And you'll grow older too. But there's just, you know, there's a maturing of that relationship. There's freedoms that you were given at a certain age. There's more freedoms now for, for most of you. And, you know, so that relationship changes over time. And, and if your parents are unbelievers, you have an, a responsibility to be a light of the gospel to them. And so if your Christianity looks like full-blown rebellion, I don't think you're doing it right. I think you should be more submissive now that you're a Christian. But ultimately, you must obey God when it comes to his commands. I think it's how I'd say that. Chris, what didn't we talk about tonight that you were hoping we would talk about? Okay, you guys, it's 11.15. The bird cops are outside. <laughs> they want my credit card number. Did we figure out the bird? Are you gonna sing a song? The Guzman, what are you gonna do? <laughs> Let's sing a song. You want, you, want me to, you want me to come up and sing it or what? I don't wanna, I'm good right here. Thank you, guys. Uh, the Duncan family is going to hang around afterwards if you want to chat. So we're around.
Thank you so much, Austin, for your ministry, and we love and appreciate your family and all that you guys do for us in our church. Uh, let's stand together. We'll sing a song that reminds us of the immense grace that we've been shown um, as believers.